Welcome to the Unfair Podcast. Hello and welcome to the OMFIF podcast. I'm Taylor Pierce, economist at OMFIF. I have the pleasure of welcoming two guests to speak with me today, Bill Papadakis, investment strategist on Lombard ODA's macro team, and Neil Williams, chief economist of OMFIF. We'll be discussing quantitative tightening and what to expect from central banks' other monetary policy tool for asset pricing and markets. Welcome, Bill and Neil. It's great to have you. Thank you, Taylor. And I believe happy birthday for yesterday. Thank you. Thank you, Taylor. Hello to everyone. In response to market turmoil as a result of the pandemic, central banks and most major economies introduced asset purchasing programs, or quantitative easing, at an unprecedented scale. The Federal Reserve's balance sheet, for example, more than doubled to $9 trillion from $4 trillion prior to the pandemic. As the battle to rein in inflation continues, and as interest rates hopefully approach their peaks soon, hopefully sometime this year in most major economies, monetary authorities are now beginning the more uncertain process of draining much of that liquidity from the financial system and unwinding their balance sheets. Bill, I'd like to come to you first to get a little bit of background. What's the current situation? Where are we with QE right now? Sure. Thank you, Taylor. I think it's fair to say that Every major central bank, while setting out their plan for what they called policy normalization, agreed on a framework that included first raising interest rates to a level sufficiently above zero that there would be some space to cut if the environment were to change. And once that part of the normalization process was done, they also shifted to the balance sheet normalization process that generally involved what we call quantitative tightening, which means allowing the size of the balance sheet to shrink either by just allowing certain assets to mature and roll off the balance sheet without the proceeds being reinvested, or in certain cases, um, actively pursuing asset sales. And by now, the progress on these plans is well underway. We have perhaps at the extreme end of the spectrum, the Bank of England that not only is it allowing uh, assets to roll off its balance sheet, but it's actively performing sales. We have the Federal Reserve that has announced and started the process of quantitative tightening at a fairly fast clip and the process continues without um, any delays. And we just had the European Central Bank that announced its first plans for balance sheet normalization starting next month uh, with a partial unwind of its APP program. Great. And as a follow-up, can you talk about how the pandemic-related emergency purchasing programs have differed from previous asset purchasing programs following the 2008 financial crisis? So I think the way to uh, approach this question is to point to the differences that the emergency purchasing programs had compared to other QE episodes that we've experienced in the past. And mainly, I think that what stands out here is the fact that there were fewer constraints around what central banks were allowed to buy, what quantities they could do that in, and what time frame they would have in mind. So instead of, for example, setting a set size of balance sheet expansion per given 
time frame, like per month or per year, most of them did whatever was necessary at the time to stabilize market conditions. So uh, especially in the euro area, I think it's useful to think about the constraints that previous QE programs had in terms of how these purchases were allocated among jurisdictions or among maturities. And given the emergency scope of the pandemic program, most of these uh, constraints were abandoned and the ECB purchased what, what was necessary at the time to stabilize conditions. Yeah, that makes sense. And finally, before I come to Neil, can you explain how quantitative easing was intended to work and where you think it's been successful in this episode and where it has had some unintended side effects for markets? We can go into that a bit more in depth later. Sure. So I think the, the simple framework through which we should be approaching quantitative easing is it's a tool that tended to kick in once central banks had cut the policy rate all the way down to zero. And as a result, they had no scope for additional easing through their traditional tools. But even when the front end of the rates curve is basically floored at the zero load bound, whether that zero is slightly below that makes no huge difference. And an upward sloping rates curve meant that further out on the curve or longer maturities, there was still scope for easing by bringing uh, those parts of the yield curve lower. And the way for central banks to do that was basically to start purchasing these assets. So what they did was uh, print the reserves and substitute the treasury bonds in various jurisdictions or their equivalents with reserves that they paid to the banking system. As a result, yields came lower across the board. And that had the sort of intended side effect of reducing the supply, the free flow of, of safe assets to market participants and pushing them into riskier assets across the risk asset uh, spectrum, which effectively loosened financial conditions and provided the extra boost to demand that was necessary in order for them to get closer to their inflation targets. Now, where the question, I guess, uh, becomes more interesting is about the unintended uh, consequences of the various QE episodes. And I think it's fair to say that there has been intense debate around these questions. I think there were some relatively uh, technical issues that did arise from time to time. For example, issues around collateral scarcity, given the amount of uh, safe paper that is being held by central banks currently. Some of these issues are relatively easy to resolve with specific technical solutions, but maybe one of the questions that has come to the fore and is of broader nature has to do with the amount of excess reserves that the QE programs provided to the banking system. And the fact that unlike in the past, these reserves are likely to stay at least to a large extent outer for an extended period of time, even if we believe that quantitative tightening is now well underway and some normalization will ensue. Nobody envisions the kinds of lean balance sheets that central banks had before the global financial crisis. And having expanded the amount of uh, excess reserves that 
are in the system and are being remunerated by uh, the, the policy rate or a certain policy rate that central banks set, that has also raised the question of whether the central banks are currently providing a sort of unintended subsidy to the banking system. And frankly speaking, there is no easy way to approach this problem. We have seen different central banks take different approaches to sort of respond to this problem. Some of them have gone for the tiering solution, like the ECB. Some others have chosen to only remunerate a certain tranche of the excess reserves in the system. And some of them are remunerating the whole amount of excess reserves that are out there. And that has lent themselves a certain criticism about uh, the, the process through which they provide uh, additional funds to the banking system. So I think while that was anticipated when central bank balance sheets started to nobody knew exactly what the final endpoint would be. And no, no one was envisioning exactly the level of interest rates that we would reach today. And as a result, the amount of funds that is being transferred to the banking system. Yeah, it's certainly a different environment than the essentially 0% interest rates in which we found ourselves after the financial crisis. I'll come back to you, Bill. But first, Neil, on that note about it being a longer process than anticipated, you've mentioned before that QE was a quick process, but central banks will not be in a rush to implement QT and unwind their balance sheets. What makes it particularly difficult for central banks to unwind the, the balance sheets in general and in the current environment? Well, yes, as Bill set out extremely clearly, I think the three of the four big central banks, the US Fed, the ECB and the Bank of England, are heading down this, this normalization path. The Bank of Japan possibly in our lifetimes never will. But getting there, the old normal, it seems to me, we're still some years away from that. What I have in mind is a situation where policy rates are sustainably above inflation. Taylor, as you touched upon, growth is guaranteed. Central banking is boring, as a former Bank of England governor said it should be. And also, it was governments that did fiscal policy, leaving central banks to, to do the monetary stuff. And you mentioned difficult, and difficult, I think, is the correct word. To throw a number out there, $20 trillion is the amount of quantitative easing that the, uh, the big four central banks threw into the system after uh, 2008. And to put that into perspective, uh, you know, that's equivalent to you know, almost the GDP of the US uh, or 115% of China's GDP. So the point I'm getting to is that before QT really can start to accelerate, the effects of uh, a decade or more of liquidity are start still to a large extent hanging out there. And I wonder uh, how central banks can pull that back, rein it in without causing unintended consequences. And I say that because something I think that Bill touched upon is that way back in 2008, 2009, the US Fed Bank of England uh, were hoping that QE would trigger two points in the economy. One is asset prices. The other is the economy more generally by providing liquidity. We would skip to the shops, be paid for higher inflation, buy stuff, and central banks would end up with a nice 2% or thereabouts uh, CPI in line with, with target. It didn't quite happen that way. I would argue that QE hit asset prices or raised asset prices uh, is probably continuing to do so. 
the other part didn't really function. Uh, we were in a liquidity trap. We possibly were attending more to reducing debt and saving than spending. So what did central banks do? They did even more QE, and that sort of set off a vicious circle. So when it comes down to getting back to normal, the paths that these central banks that Bill highlights are on, I just wonder, you know, what, what are the sharp rocks hiding below that this tide of liquidity is not revealing as liquidity starts to go out? And as you know, Taylor, at Onfif, we have our own litmus tests, uh, surveys of reserve bank asset managers and also of pension fund and sovereign wealth managers. And as you know, middle of last year, central bank reserve managers in general were saying that risk tolerance was still pretty much high, even though all the responses to that survey were taken after the start of the tragic war to the east. And at Christmas, with the pension funds managers and sovereign wealth, they were painting a very different picture, where it looked as though risk was taken off the table. What a difference six months make. So where I get is that central banks are now marching as fast as they can to normalise, using those two levers, rate hikes and quantitative tightening. But I just doubt, as you suggest, that QT can be as hard and fast as QE was uh, because of the damage to the economy that would cause. Yeah, I like the metaphor of the tide <laughs> protecting from the perhaps jagged rocks below the cushioning from the risks that we might not be aware are there in the financial system. But before I come to some of the impacts on financial markets, first, Neil, you've also spoken about how QE has coincided with a significant increase in government debt. Um, you just mentioned this as well, not just as, as a result of COVID, but over the past few years. What will QT mean for government financing and debt, and where do you see the biggest risks? Yes, and I think, Taylor, this is the crux of it, the, the legacy of the global financial crisis, you know, e even before COVID and the war struck, uh, really is the build-up in government debt ratios. And what worries me is not so much necessarily the level of the debt, but the fact that, to put it into perspective, even going into COVID, the UK's debt to GDP, but not just the UK, the US's and the euro areas, were two to three times higher than Japan's was as a share of its GDP when Japan limped into its lost decade in the mid-1990s. How does Japan get away with it? Well, um, as, as you know, all of Japan's debt is in a currency they can print, uh, yen, uh, of which almost all of that, 97%, is held by domestic investors. Uh, in Japan, the, the, the policymakers call it lending within the, within the family, which can't be said of, of the UK, the US and, and core euro area economies. In the UK, 40% of our uh, market-held government debt is owned by international investors. In the US, it's 25%. And for the euro area, you know, paying on that debt probably needs the strength of the glue holding the euro club together to remain uh, in, in place. So in the UK's case, the US and the euro area, we are living in what another former governor of the Bank of England said, uh, Mark Carney, which is the kindness of strangers, where those strangers, international investors, will care a bit more than Japanese investors did about ratings and also about uh, yields and currency risk, in which case, when fiscal deficits are large, debt is high, economies uh, have growth rates that are fairly pedestrian. It seems to me that selling bonds back into the system is going to be difficult. QT will be slow and gradual and certainly slower than QE was in providing liquidity to us in the first place. Yeah, great. Thank you for that comprehensive answer. And I'll come to Bill now. How do you anticipate that financial markets will react to various QT scenarios? Uh, have you talked about 
passive and active QT. Are there any specific markets, could be countries or sectors, that you anticipate would be particularly sensitive to tightening? So I do believe that by now we have a certain amount of past quantitative tightening episodes that allow us to make some educated guesses about the possible market reactions. We should acknowledge that there are certain aspects of the process that we don't fully understand to the complete extent. And and as a result, everyone is trying to guess how the process should work and then assess incoming information as it arrives in order to update those priors. But maybe the, the safe guesses that we can make at this point are that if central banks communicate their QT plans well in advance and the QT process is executed in smooth and relatively predictable manner, and perhaps more importantly, if the process is then adjusted as market conditions start to evolve and perhaps even terminated when it's becoming clear that liquidity conditions are coming close to a critical level, then the the market reaction should as a whole be rather smooth. Most of the information is pre-announced, is incorporated in market expectations. We've experienced some parts of the process already. And as a result, this shouldn't be a huge surprise or a shock that results in market dysfunction. And if central banks stand ready to adjust their process, that provides an extra valve. Now, maybe in terms of your second question, which markets or which sectors we should perhaps uh, consider as high risk or particularly sensitive to tightening, I think it's no secret to anyone that one concern here is the European peripheral bond markets, and perhaps especially Italy. That's no secret to market participants. And it's also no secret to the ECB. There's a widely spread understanding that some of the low yields that the European periphery enjoyed for the previous few years also came as a result of large-scale QE exercise that was undertaken by the ECB and that when the moment comes for that process to go into reverse, especially at the rising rates environment, some debt sustainability questions might come back, especially for high debt countries like Italy. And the reason that the ECB designed a program specifically to address these fragmentation concerns the transmission protection instrument that it announced months ago is specifically to deal with such issues. But I guess the secret in that process will be how exactly it's implemented and how exactly it's supposed to work. So we sort of know by now the conditions that would suffice for the ECB to activate the mechanism and the conditionality doesn't appear particularly high, but we don't don't know exactly how the mechanism is supposed to operate. So if the European Central Bank is meant to be reducing the size of its balance sheet, and at a certain point, fragmentation concerns rise, and it needs to 
buy a certain amount of peripheral bonds, how does it compensate for that in the broader balance sheet tightening process? I think these are big questions that haven't been fully answered. Maybe a favorable scenario for the ECB is that the instrument may never have to be used. And as a result, questions will not need to be answered. But to have a detailed and more concrete plan, I think might be important for the market to uh, feel less concerned about adverse scenarios in this context. Yeah, definitely. I think it is, as you mentioned, safe to say that the transmission mechanism for QT is less well understood than rate policy, but also less well understood than QE. There's just a dearth of empirical evidence so far. So given that, looking ahead, Neil, I'll come to you first. What should we be expecting from monetary policymakers on QT? And what are some potential risks or factors which may hinder their ability to tighten as planned? I think Bill made some excellent points. And the bottom line is that actually that central banks are in quite a, a good position. Yes, good position. That's that's an unfashionable thing to say, because they have two levers. They've pressed very hard on the first lever, uh, rate hikes, to make up for lost time into the northern hemisphere winter. Uh, so what could possibly go wrong? But the, the second lever, of course, is that they have to support that or even maybe to offset it going forward. Uh, as Bill suggested, they have the, the possibility of taking out liquidity or even if they need to, adding liquidity. And a very good example of the need for communication that Bill rightly highlighted and how nimble central banks may be going forward is what happened in the UK in September and October after the, the tumult in the gilts and sterling market after the, the scare of unfunded tax cuts. The pension funds felt the strain and the Bank of England was very quick, impressively so, to come straight back in and first of all, suspend its active quantitative tightening, which it's since restarted, and also add liquidity. Now, skeptics like I, first of all, thought this was emergency QE and more of the same. And of course, the bank has been very quick to say this is therefore financial support targeted not to try to generate inflation and therefore it's not QE. But where it leaves us going forward is that banks need not be dogmatic. They can be nimble. And they can respond to uh, crises using those two levers. I strongly suspect that we may be getting close to peak rates from the main central banks, uh, at least the US Fed and the Bank of England. The ECB, with its fragmentation risk, as Bill highlighted, may be slower with QT, rightly so, and therefore it may go on harder and longer on rate hikes. But the point is that going forward, that then presents not just an opportunity for central banks to use that second lever, but a new kind of challenge. Again, something that Bill rightly flagged up, and that is the extent to which markets focus on the fiscal cost of monetary decisions. And one, obviously, currently that's on the back of market practitioners' minds at the moment is the extent to which governments are in the short term having to compensate central banks for any short-term losses they may be making on their still bloated balance sheets. Now, the Bank of England is in a reasonably good position because it was clever enough back in uh, 2009 when it started QE to, to take out a, an, an indemnity whereby the Treasury fills the gap. Other central banks may not have more formally taken that precaution, but for markets, it may offer two risks. One is that risk that central banks' balance sheets are being hit as policy rates remain above long-term yields on which central banks are managing their balance sheets, in which case that surely central banks just hold that debt uh, longer into the future and closer to maturity. 
But secondly, uh, it may raise some scares in bond markets that there is an opportunity cost. By helping central banks in the short term, government offers are, are, are now less plentiful and there may be less for governments to spend in fiscal largesse uh, to give support to growth. Uh, again, there are ways around this. It's a very technical subject, but also filling that uh, perception or meeting that perception in markets may be a new challenge for these central banks going forward. And it'll be interesting, uh, Taylor, when you're celebrating your next birthday this time next year, the extent to which policy rates have already peaked. And also, uh, it'll be interesting to, to find out how fast and uh, how far central banks really have been allowed to go uh, on quantitative tightening. Thanks, Neil. Bill, any final thoughts on what we should be expecting from monetary policymakers on QT? Any potential risks or final thoughts on QT in general? Sure. I think one element that be, uh, I will be particularly focused on as the process unfolds will be to see how proactive central banks can be at the moment where liquidity conditions in the market start to change. If they reach that point, like the Federal Reserve did in the past, where quantitative tightening is starting to look like it's gone too far, how quickly are they going to be able to sort of update their framework and adjust their policy stance in order to avert any market disruptions? And maybe just as a final thought and complementing what Neil was just very clearly explaining is that the changing rates and balance sheet environment can also result and is likely to result in losses in certain central bank balance sheets. And while that might not necessarily have an operational implication, we know, for example, that central banks are even able to perform their job with negative equity, they're not commercial banks. There is always inevitably a political aspect to this. And sitting here in Switzerland, I think we have a prime example of how this mechanism might function because throughout previous years, the Swiss National Bank was able to do very large profits that they could then distribute to the government. And that was a windfall that was particularly welcome by policymakers. But now that this process has turned into uh, reverse and the losses mean that the central bank is not able to distribute any gains, that sort of expectation on the political side that there would be that constant inflow perhaps that would allow additional fiscal space, ad additional revenues to be spent in certain projects, of course, is being tested and we haven't necessarily seen very severe reactions to this change yet, but one has to wonder whether if that process runs for a while longer and the losses start to accumulate, what reaction we might get in the political front. Yeah, it's a great point, Bill. And I think we could spend a whole other podcast discussing the political implications of all of this, including central banks' losses and the reversal of the dynamics which you just explained. But for now, I will thank both Neil and Bill for joining me today. And thank you also for our listeners. Be sure to subscribe to OMFIF Podcasts wherever podcasts are available. Thank you for listening to the OMFIF Podcast.